Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. If you travel, you know how to pull off a perfect getaway. You know after you enroll with your Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card, you get up to $10 back monthly on U.S. rideshare purchases with select providers, like a car to the airport. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths and where the Wi-Fi password is rarely used. Because you're the escape artist. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.mx slash you know. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. If you travel for work, you know to pack two suits, business and swim. You know with your Delta SkyMiles business Amex card, buying that plane ticket for a business trip can get you closer to medallion status. You know that a meeting in Montana means visiting almost every national park. Yellowstone? Check. Because you're the chief excursion officer. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum Business American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know business. When you choose Organic Valley, not only will you be enjoying great tasting dairy, you'll help to save over 1,600 small organic family farms who are protecting over 400,000 acres of organic farmland and all the plants and animals that call it home. This is dairy you can feel good about. It's great tasting, high-quality organic dairy, ethically sourced from small organic family farms. To find Organic Valley Dairy near you, visit ov.coop. That's ov.coop. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week we come to you from Dallas, Texas. He's the executive director of the Historic Hotels of America, Larry Horowitz. How are you, sir? Thank you, Peter. Glad to be here. I mean, you're here for the reason that I know you're here, because you've just made them. You've just inducted them as the 300th hotel that's a pretty big deal for you guys. That's a major milestone for the National Trust. And well, let's talk Trust. about the National Trust because Historical Tales of America is part of that National Trust. Correct. We're an official program of the National Trust for Historic Preservation. Part of the Park Service? Uh, no, they were independent of the Park Service. The National Trust uh, uh, 
uh, for historic preservation was chartered in 1949, and essentially it's in, it's there to help save places that matter. And this place mattered, and this place was about to be destroyed. Correct. In 2008, the National Trust for Historic Preservation named the Statler to the National Trust's 11 most endangered list. Because it had been vacant since 2001 or 2002 and was destined to be vacant until somebody got a wrecking ball. Yeah, I was was in threat of uh, being demolished. Uh, Dallas, through prior prior years, had designated it as the uh, most historic building worth saving and on their most endangered list. So what turned it around? Uh, A a combination of uh, good local support, um, a a collaboration between uh, a buyer uh, collaborating with the city, the state, and the federal government for historic tax credits, uh, and then really the commitment uh, and the vision of an ownership group that saw how they could make this into a viable project. Now, today it's called the Statler. At one point it was called the Statler, and then it became the Statler Hilton. How'd that happen? Uh, Statler Hotel, this was the last hotel uh, started to be built by the Statler Hotels Corporation. Which at that time was a luxury hotel corporation. Exactly. Uh, Conrad Hilton in 1954 acquired the Statler Hotels Corporation, and he thought that was his um, best achievement at that point. And his most expensive. $111 million, the most expensive real estate purchase at the time. And uh, so he got the name, he got the hotel. And because of that, he insisted his board, I'm going to call it the Statler Hilton, because it immediately elevated the Hilton chain into the luxury sector. Now, isn't that ironic? Okay. Yeah. So he does, and then what happens? Well, the amazing thing, he, he puts the money in, the $16 million to finish the project and complete it, opens in, in uh, um, 1956. They have a four and by day. the way, that's $16 million of 1956 money. That's a lot of money. That's today. a lot of money. Yeah, and that was a lot of money for any hotel. This right. was the largest hotel opened. Uh, it was the first major hotel in nearly three decades to be built in Dallas. Uh, when it opened, it was the largest hotel in the Southwest. Uh, and, and of course, he, his opening party lasted for four days. <laughs> well, if you spend that kind of money, you better party. Yeah. Uh, and yet, it's, it's not a huge hotel. It's like, like 160 Today rooms. Today, it's 159 rooms, yeah, yeah. and then there's a residential component with about 300 residences. When it opened, it had uh, 1,002 rooms. Wow. Because he insisted, I have to be over 1,000 rooms. That was really the reason? Yes. Wow. They had to Ego. They, Ego. They had to have the first hotel with over 1,000 rooms. Amazing. And so, there it was standing vacant, and my understanding is one group came in to try to save it. They failed. Uh, took two groups, tried, failed. The third group had success. And the way they had success probably is they had to do it as a private-public partnership. They had a better vision. They had the experience. They had the, uh, I think they had better capital. Uh, and they had a vision to, uh, uh, to make this back into a very viable mixed-use uh, project. Uh, and, and instead of just focusing, making it solely dependent on being a, a hotel. You know, we talk about 300 hotels, um, but then some people think they confuse the word historic with old, uh, because there are a lot of old hotels that are still out there, right? That's correct. Like about 30,000 of them. There are about 30,000 hotels. Uh, we have uh, 300. We, we validate those that are the most historically significant and those that uh, have, the, have the best architecture. And, you know, we mentioned that the Statler was inducted as the 300th of your historic hotels, but you actually have another 200 hotels, don't you? Correct. We have a sister program to Historic Hotels of America called Historic Hotels Worldwide. 
and that's uh, almost close to 300 hotels now in uh, more than 36 countries. When we talk about a historic hotel, I mean, the criteria that we would use is not necessarily just old, but meaningful, that it, that it, that it added something to the history of that city, the history of the country, history of the culture, uh, history of a population, right? I mean, That's correct. We, we first like for Historic Hotels of America to have a hotel at least 50 years old, following the National Park Service guidelines. Have the host, they actually have guidelines. Though. Yeah, tremendous guidelines for historic preservation. Uh, second, to either be listed in the National Register of Historic Places. So this hotel, when you think about it, just made the cut. Right, because it's it made, it's our, one of our youngest members. It is, isn't it? Because 1954, 56, 60, 65 uh, would be our yeah about. That's what's a baby. Yeah. Okay, keep going. Our, so the, the so at least at least has to be 50 years old. At least 50 years old, either listed or eligible to be listed in the National Register of Historic Places, which is a, a program run by the National Park Service to help preserve historic buildings. And this one's listed? Uh, this one is eligible to be listed. Ah, okay. Uh, because of its tax credits, it's moving along, and my, my sense is it will be listed because of the amount of support and the importance it's had. Sometimes it's a little slower with the younger buildings to move them up to the list. <laughs> okay, so, I, so age matters. What else? Age matters. Uh, historic significance and architectural significance are two uh, items looked at. Well, the architectural significance is this is the uh, one of the, the, the buildings that they say was the start of the modernist movement in American architecture. We call it mid-century modern. But uh, there's an architect, William Tabler, uh, he built a couple of hotels in Florida, he built a hotel in, in, I think it was one in Puerto Rico, and he built this one. Uh, and and the, the style of architecture uh, is cool today. At the time, well, it was retro. Yeah, it was very innovative, and it was, it was a different... It was, it was, well, I remember hearing stories this morning that, you know, the hotel, you know, pioneered like they had a TV in every room. Whoa. And then they had elevator music. Well, okay, so much for that, but they did. Well, they did it one step further, Peter. They they had the first ones to have a 21-inch TV. Excuse now, me. Now, anyone today who's had a 21-inch TV at home, you say, what's the matter? But right. they they go from the standard back then was a box. Uh, 18 was luxurious. Right. Smaller was what you got if you were in a luxury hotel. The standard hotels didn't have TVs in every room. Uh, the second thing, I have music in an elevator. And that's, uh, if anyone wants to blame someone, that, that happened that here. That happened here first. Yeah. There were, there were a number of things. They had a, a mascot at the time. Uh, and actually, it's a... Uh, it, uh, what it, was... I Dare I ask what the mascot was? Linda Lee Llama. They had a llama. Uh, hotels today have pet mascots, dogs, cats. Uh, the Peabody has another... So the dog, dog and the cat were busy, and the yeah. duck was already in Memphis? The ducks were in Memphis yeah. at the Peabody, so they had a llama. And the <laughs> llama was here by mistake because it, it was brought in to... Uh, actually stay here for uh, two weeks uh, uh, stint going back and forth at a Neiman Marcus store. Right. And stayed here, and they liked it so much, they said, well, we got to keep the llama. And they kept the llama? Yeah. They did, did, the llama, did the llama have its own room? It had its own suite. Uh, no. And they're actually going to bring the llama back to, they have a visiting llama that's here, and the, the, the owners plan to uh, reincorporate uh, the red visiting carpet, llama a red service carpet of Dallas, and yes. a llama. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay, so a couple of firsts. You know, I mean, uh, <laughs> it reminds you of a limerick. There once was a gaucho named Bruno who said there was one thing I do know. A woman is fine, a sheep is divine, but a llama is numero uno. There you go. That's it for me. Um, not, not a career-ending move, but close. But they did that pioneering work back then, right? Correct. But now it's 2018. 
So, of course, you're going to have a TV in every room. Thank God they got rid of the elevator music, right? And thank God you don't have to crawl on your hands and knees to find an outlet in the room. They figured that one out. Correct. So they've actually gotten a little high-tech in the technology, which they needed at every hotel. But they still qualify as the 300th. The 300th. We, we qualify because this is a tremendous historic preservation story. It's historically significant because of the name Statler and its importance in, in the history of American hotels and hospitality. Uh, it's, it's important because of its architectural significance and its importance to the nation. Uh, it's going to be one of the first uh, modernist movement buildings. Uh, and, it's, and it's important uh, in, in its of, of guests and celebrities uh, who stayed here. Uh, there's a, it's the stories that uh, were written here and occurred here. Right. And it's important now to this neighborhood, which was falling apart until they got this thing back up and running. This has turned the area around. Uh, hotels, historic hotels are tremendous anchors for a, uh, putting new vibrancy into a, into a community. They're tremendous. There are main streets, but there are businesses there 24, day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's tremendous. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. mentioned this hotel has got great history. My next guest knows all about the history because, well, he's the curator of the Dallas Historical Society. His name, Alan Olson. How are you, sir? Very well, sir. I mean, we are sitting at a real piece of history, aren't we? Oh, absolutely. In what way? It's been an iconic hotel in Dallas for many, many years, and it was a shame that it fell into disrepair, but now the new team that's taken over and restored is just fabulous. But what made it so much history there? Because every hotel tells a story, of course. Well, the Statler itself had fantastic art in it. There were many celebrities visiting, just the finest restaurant, the whole nine yards. And now it's coming back. Yes, sir. Uh, when you take a look at so much history that wasn't preserved, so much history that got lost, I mean, you're in a constant fight. I mean, about the whole city, about saying, we got to keep this, we got to keep this, we got to keep this so we can tell the story. All the time in Dallas, we're really... Um, looking forward to the new thing, the latest thing, and that's all very wonderful, but of course, as we do that, we often lose the classic landmarks. So, I mean, you've been in Dallas for, what, 20 years now? Yes. Uh, what have you seen changed, and what were you able to preserve going beyond just the Statler? Well, when I first got here, you know, Highway 75, I could breeze in there up to Plano, and after that, it got busy, but now it gets busy at the Oklahoma border, <laughs> and it becomes quite a long drive as a result. Exactly. Um, I've seen a lot of neighborhoods change. Uh, many buildings have been torn down, of course, over the years, but you look at the State Thomas area that was an eco economically depressed area, and historically uh, it was first a uh, Jewish neighborhood, then African-American. The restoration that's gone on there and really revitalization of that has been a key part of downtown. You know, when I was growing up, my, my exposure to Dallas, of course, was, was a sad exposure. I was, you know, just a teenager, uh, a young teenager at that, on November 22nd, 1963, uh, a Friday. I'll never, you know, everybody knows where they were. I know where I was uh, when JFK was shot, not far from here. And that really was a defining moment for Dallas. I mean, 
the archives at SMU has a tremendous number of telegrams that came into the mayor and the city and obviously a lot of hate-filled telegrams and shock and disbelief, but to turn the city's image around in the 70s and have things like the Dallas Cowboys that became America's team was a <laughs> can, you say that, can you say that the right way? America's team. Fred, I'm from Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, but you just said it anyway. Um, the thing that was a big surprise to me the last time I was in Dallas, um, and maybe it's a surprise to you, was how well they've done the George Bush Presidential Library. Absolutely. I mean, I was completely floored. I mean, it was amazing. That was really a class project, and we were wondering. Speaking of SMU. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, we were wondering when all the land was being acquired around it, and you know, some neighborhoods are being torn down. How that would end up, but it really is a fantastic library and a good gem in the city now. And they, they rotate the exhibits. I mean, there's always something going on there. I just think it's fabulous. It is indeed. What are you doing with your exhibits? Because you have an exhibit from '63 as well. We do. Um, we just opened an exhibit that will run through the end of the year called Dallas in the Time of MLK. And over his lifetime, Martin Luther King visited Dallas on five different occasions to speak and organize and uh, talk about the civil rights movement and peaceful protest. And he came on January 4th of 1963 and spoke at the Music Hall in Fair Park. And that's the night we're focusing on. Why that night? It was the first major talk that was open to all the public in Dallas that he was attending. And the book we're basing it off of, uh, Dallas 1963, uh, the authors did a beautiful job of telling the story that night, not just from Dr. King's standpoint, but the people on the outside who were protesting his visit. And then he, the both authors, I should say, went into conversing a bit more about what Dallas was like at that time and who was involved in the civil rights movement in Dallas. So it's an education to focus beyond just that. Now, your own building is a National Historic Landmark. It is indeed, Expl the Hall Estate. Explain why. The Hall Estate was built in 1936 uh, as part of the centennial celebration of the Republic of Texas. But that was also the Republic of Texas. The Republic of yes. Texas. <laughs> that was also a World's Fair. So it was a large celebration, and at 1.2 million, it was the most expensive building ever constructed in the state, and that's in the middle of the Great Depression as well. So significant. Someone was committed. Somebody put the money up. Absolutely. And how often do you rotate your exhibits? We rotate them on a regular basis. Uh, this particular one, because of the subject matter, and we want so many school kids to see it. We're leaving it up for a year. But we'll rotate quarterly. Now, you, know, you, you talk about the, the Republic of Texas because that goes back to Texas and independence and everything else. You have to celebrate that, too. Always. <laughs> and how do you celebrate it at, the, at, at your society? Well, we do a lot of uh, different talks, public programming, and pop-up exhibits, for example. Right now we have one up that we put up for Alamo Day that we'll be taking down. It's just a few cases, but you can see things like Davy Crockett's pistol or the watch that Fannin had at Goliad. You know, when I first came to Dallas, I made the pilgrimage to Neiman Marcus because my mother told me, go, but don't buy anything. <laughs> because when they have a sale there, they reduce it to retail, if you hadn't noticed. Oh, yes. But Stanley Marcus was a huge factor in the history of this city. He was, um, not just in Neiman Marcus, but his own beliefs. He is very much tied into the civil rights movement in Dallas. It was Neiman Marcus that was one of the first stores to integrate. Uh, he was the first one to hire African-American employees on the floor. And he very strongly believed in desegregation of the schools and worked very hard toward that. 
And yet that story isn't often told, which is great. No, it gets lost in the grandeur of Neiman's. <laughs> and you go downtown Dallas, the original store is still there. Yes, sir. And I worry about it because I, I walk in, it's very quiet. It can be, but yeah. I think luxury retail can kind of be that way. Although I'm still taking my mother's advice. You I'm should. not buying anything. <laughs> my wife worked there for 25 years, and I never bought anything. And, there, you, had the, wait, and you had the employee discount. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> what does that tell you? But it's definitely a place to go visit. It Absolutely. is. And, uh, and it's not, not far from this building as well. Alan Olson, the curator from the Dallas Historical Society. How often are you open? We are open uh, Tuesdays through Sundays. Any admission? No, we're free to the public. Free to the public. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. You know, when you come to Dallas, there are so many museums here that you think you know, and then there's so many museums you don't know. And my next guest is the uh, basically from a museum that's actually a composite of a number of museums, the Children's Museums, History Museum. Am I right? Teresa Lundley, how are you? Hi, I'm doing great. Thank you. And you're, you're an escapee from Des Moines. Absolutely. Came down to the south to Dallas and fell in love with Dallas immediately. And the name of the museum is the Perot Museum. That's correct. What, what an unusual name here in Dallas. They're a great family, and we're very fortunate to have them engaged with our museum. So explain how all these museums were combined. So back in 2006, the, the three museums, the Children's Museum, Natural History Museum, which has great history here in Dallas, uh, started up in 1936. So we have a great foundation of a history with natural, natural history dioramas and engagement with the community. And also the Science Place came together with the plans of building the future Perot Museum of Nature and Science, not knowing what it was called at that time, but coming together underneath the Dallas Museum of Natural History. Now, when I was growing up, there was no such thing as an interactive museum. You just stood away, were told not to touch, 15 feet away, looking at an inanimate object. Things have changed. Absolutely. So when we opened the doors in 2012, we opened the doors to something that was really unique in museums. It was looking at natural history, and also science centers, and how do you really break down that intimidation factor and make it really hands-on and engaging? And we want people to come in and touch things. So it's very opposite to what you know what we're accustomed to thinking of with natural history museums. All right. So what what do I get to touch? Come on, let's get right down to it. So when you walk in the doors, the first thing that you encounter, even before you come in the doors, are a series of outdoor frogs and different types of installations, a music installation outdoors, where we want you to play and interact and really start to get a feel for what the museum's like and really start to engage. And then when you walk in the doors, you get an opportunity to engage with some interactive art pieces. So we have water molecules hanging from the ceiling that when you walk underneath them, they dance, and we call it dancing water. And so you have an opportunity to just watch people walk under and be amazed by what's around them. So immediately when you walk in the door, you're, you're surrounded by that hands-on environment. I'm assuming it's gonna bring out the kid in you. Absolutely, we, we have a, a saying at the museum, cradle to gray, and we engage with all levels from cradle to gray, and we really want people to, to have an opportunity to walk away with more questions than when they walked in the door. And I think that's one of the important things is that when you walk in, whether you go down to the sports hall and you race a T-Rex and you try to beat a T-Rex, or if you go up into the being The only museum that features T-Rex racing, I might say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. I don't know if I'm quite fast enough to beat the T-Rex, for sure. 
Um, I might be able to beat the Mosasaur, which is a swimming swimming uh, creature, but you know, it, it just depends on the day. So it's, it's really fun. And we want people again to have those unique experiences and go, can I beat a T-Rex? <laughs> no, can I be a T-Rex? <laughs> that's right, that's right. But here's my other question, because when I was going to school, science was not my strong point, right? When there was open school night and the parents had to come and talk to the teachers, they would usually begin the conversation by saying, Dr. Mrs. Greenberg, your son doesn't really want to become a physicist, does he? Good, because that's not going to happen, right? So when I go to a museum, I need somebody to make it relevant to me so I can relate to it. Otherwise, I can't understand those theories. Absolutely. So one of the other unique things that we have at the museum is when you walk in the door, we again really want you to engage and ask questions. And throughout the museum, we have um, educators that are there and they're called brainiacs. And they're there to answer your questions and to they're help. They're like docents. Yes, absolutely. And they're there to, to help you, you know, explore things in a different way. Again, they have different types of demonstrations that they'll pull out of their pocket. They might pull out like examples of dinosaur poo <laughs> and they will, they'll go hey take a look at this and uh ask those questions and say what do you think this is and you know really it's to have you look at things differently and really view science in a very different way so for your first time visitors or even maybe for your return visitors what's the one thing in the museum that surprises them i think one of the things that surprises them is just how interactive our museum is again it's it's thinking about you know how can you talk about you know paleontology and sports in one space, uh, you know, really taking those two extremes and putting them together, it's not necessarily the most common thing, but having them walk away and go, that was really amazing. I never thought I would really enjoy science in that way. And, you know, I think we're looking at look, changing up some of our exhibit halls. So basically though, rap music and Einstein's theory right. of relativity. That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. And we do have a whole section about music, too, to, again, in the engineering hall for you to go, I really enjoy music, but what's the science behind that? And create music and use a mixer and really, again, explore those do things. A, do that, you have a recording booth? It's set up kind of like a recording booth, yeah. uh, but basically you can go in and mix different instruments, and then you can actually see how they're connected by watching the instruments actually play once you have created your mix in the mixer. See, next stop, you need a recording studio. That's right. You got to do that, because then maybe something cool comes out of that. Absolutely. Like rap music and Einstein's <laughs> theory of relativity. I, I love it. I think that's perfect. Right? Yeah. So you call it Run DMC Square. <laughs> Get it? Yes. I just made I, that up. It's, that's fantastic. I, I, I'm, I'm, gonna I'm very impressed with myself, actually. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to have you back at the Perot Museum to help engage with our guests. <laughs> so great. Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go My next guest, would you, would you say you're a Dallas native almost? I was born and raised here. Then so you would yes. say that, wouldn't you? I would say that. I know. because Just like my dad. Just like your dad. And a journalistic icon himself because, he's, <laughs> well, you've managed to hold down jobs in all the papers, some of which are still with us and some of which aren't. That's right. Robert Wolanski from the Dallas Morning News. How are you? Good. Thanks. Great having, I, I, great having you here, and I, I'm, I'm honored to be here. Well, and, and if, since we're on radio, let's, let's set the scene here. Where we are at the, at the Statler is literally spitting distance to the Dallas Morning News offices. We are connected literally to the Statler. We have a, uh, an office. Uh, we're in the old downtown library, the old George Dahl Design Library, which is attached to the Statler. So we uh, actually have a door that takes us right into the uh, second floor. 
in all my years coming to Dallas, this was not a neighborhood I used to come to. It was in the park across the street was like an old garage. It's a parking garage, right? Yeah. This building was was basically vacant for what sixteen years. It was. I think it's uh, two thousand two is when it stopped being yeah. the, uh, the uh, hotel. Yeah, and yet it's got such history. It does. I you know. Two blocks down the street when I was at the Dallas Observer, we were in the OKLIF building at 2130 Commerce. We're at 1954 Commerce. So I used to walk by this building every day for many years, and I would lament its uh, its emptiness. It smelled uh, in so many different ways. I can't begin to describe it. You see, there are hotels that, that perfume their lobbies. This one had a different kind of odor. It's uh, it's its perfume was more exterior than it was interior. <laughs> so I used to walk by it and think uh, that library would be a great place for a newspaper. And when I, I I couldn't believe this was no longer a hotel. At one point, uh, the mayor wanted to tear this building down. And this was on the endangered species list. It really was. It was. They wanted to tear it down. In fact, this was going to be the park that we now see across the street, Main Street Garden Park. So you know the old Johnny Mitchell song got reversed. They didn't tear down the park and build up a parking lot. Right. It's uh, extraordinary that this thing survived as long as it did. This and the old Dallas, host, uh, the Dallas High School, uh, which is not far from here as well, were two buildings that were very endangered for a very long time. I mean, this, this hotel now becomes the poster child for restoration and preservation. It does until the cabana opens. Uh, obviously, the same owner of this hotel is going to do the cabana, which is uh, over on Stemmons, which is where the Beatles stayed, where Raquel Welch was a cocktail waitress, and that's the hotel best known for uh, having be gone from a hotel to a jail and they're going to reconvert it back into a hotel. And Raquel is still with us. Maybe she'll come back. That would be lovely. Yes. Barbara. No, that's Jane Fonda, Barbarella. Bar- yeah, right. <laughs> See, I, I missed But same sort of concept. Well, the, the fact yeah. that this hotel stands, I was in this hotel about uh, 10, 15 years ago in the library itself. I mean, the, this, the basement of where we are now was flooded. There were pigeons and rats living in many of the rooms. Uh, the windows had been broken. And it was an appalling place to even stand in. And the fact that we're here... Next to the ballroom where the Jackson 5 performed, where two weeks ago Tony Bennett came back to perform after a, a 40-year absence is remarkable. And, you know, when you look at the Grand Dame hotels, people didn't use – well, up until recently, people th- didn't perform in hotels. It was like they used to do supper clubs at hotels. That's and, right. And, right? I mean, this was one well, of them. Right behind you is the old Empire Room where Tony Bennett performed, where those stained glass windows are. That was the – uh, one of the premier downtown destinations in the 50s and 60s. Now, this hotel just became the 300th hotel inducted into the Historic Hotels of America. That's right. I mean, a huge preservation project. That's right. I mean, look, this was on every endangered list, Preservation Dallas, the National Park's endangered list. It was thought to be a, a goner. And and the fact that it remains, the fact that – I mean, I've, I, I've already taken this place for granted. We moved in here in December. I'm in this hotel five, six times a day, getting a cup of coffee, getting a cup of tea, meeting friends, taking meetings. And the fact is – um, I have to remind myself what a special place this is. And, of course, if truth be told, you're here for the biscuits. The biscuits are extraordinary. You know, I, I got an email before I got here saying, whatever else you do, we don't even care if you hate the room, get a biscuit. I've had lunch twice here this week. The perfect omelet is, in fact, the perfect omelet. So I highly recommend that. But you got to get a biscuit with that. Then you can go uh, over to Scout and go bowling. I walked in there last night. My first time in the hotel since it was a hotel before. Right. And I walked in. I, I see people playing pool. There's a bar scene. It's very active. And, it's a, and I noticed people like, you know, like bowling. And they're bowling in there. They are. My, my 14-year-old son does not like coming to the office very much because what 14-year-old likes to go to dad's work? But the fact that my son can now come to my office, go get a bite to eat, and then go bowl or go play ping pong or go play pool makes him very happy. So basically, this is not a hotel. It's a rec center. 
Basically, yeah. There's a swimming pool on the roof. It's not a very good one for swimming. It's more just for uh, soaking. No, no. It's, it's a good pool to be seen at. It is. The rooftop is fantastic. Yeah. So how has this neighborhood changed along with the hotel? Well, I mean, look, I, I worked down here in the early 90s, and it was a wasteland. There was nothing going on down here. The buildings were mostly empty. It was a, it was a, I mean, it was, as I said, it smelled, uh, it had a unique fragrance, let's put it that way, because it was uh, mostly uh, populated by uh, people who uh, thought these buildings were uh, porta potties without a door, basically. Um, Although I've stayed in hotels. Yeah, well, right, that's you're, story. You, you travel. You're, yeah, I do. You're yeah. a well-traveled man. Those of us who never leave the inner loop of, down, of downtown Dallas uh, don't see that much. You're, you're a deep Ellum guy. My uh, family. Uh, See, my, I know it. My family built uh, several buildings in Deep Ellum, only one of which still stands. Uh, is Deep Ellum going to come back? Oh, it is back in it a big way. Here. It's it's anchored. I don't know if you've been there uh, on this visit, but no. there uh, there are two giant high rises now anchoring Deep Ellum, one at one end, one at the uh, the downtown end, and it's only getting bigger, um, which concerns a lot of us who spent a lot of time in Deep Ellum or whose family had a lot of ties to Deep Ellum. I certainly grew up going. Explain to where Deep Ellum is. Deep Ellum is just uh, on the uh, east side of downtown. It's just on the other side of what we call the I-345, Interstate 345, which we're hoping that one day gets torn down to restitch downtown to Deep Ellum and, and bring them back together because at one point Deep Ellum and downtown were essentially the same, as they should be. But uh, it's where, you know, Blind Lemon Jefferson performed. It's where Lead Belly got off the train. It's where my grandfather had an auto parts store and my uh, great uncle had a dry goods store. And it's where... There's a, where, where Nirvana performed uh, in a small club uh, in 1991 called Trees. It's where there are many. It's where Dallas's music scene really took root, whether it was the blues of the 20s and 30s or the, the rock of the 80s and 90s. And where is the music scene today? Still in Deep Ellum. It is. Yeah, it's, uh, Deep Ellum still has a, Deep Ellum actually has two tremendously uh, uh, vibrant music venues that have just reopened, one of which is the Bomb Factory, which is where they actually did make bombs during World War II, and next to it is, uh, is another venue as well. An aptly named place if you're a comedian who doesn't do well. That's right. But uh, so far they have not booked anyone that has not done well. <laughs> a legacy in the making. It's a, it's a great venue. It's uh, Erica Badu opened it, uh, a Dallas treasure, and every time she performs there it's always packed out. We're talking to Robert Walonsky from the Dallas Morning News. Since you're so close to the hotel, I'm sure you've been through all of it. Is there one place in this hotel that just blows you away? The roof, I'll say this, the roof at night. Uh, I, I was at Scout the other night having dinner, and then we went up to the bar to, to just see the bar. And I just stood up there sort of amazed at the view. Uh, it was beautiful. I felt like I, and I've been on a lot of the rooftops downtown, but there's something special. You've got the, the, the llama statue upstairs, because when this place opened in 56, they brought Linda the llama in, an actual llama, and they had one here a couple of weeks ago during the re-grand opening. But the, Brad Oldham did a, a beautiful uh, sculpture up there. And it's, uh, it's neat to kind of see that reflected in the downtown lights. And with enough drinks, the llama will talk to you. Uh, sure. With enough drinks, anyone will talk to you. <laughs> but it's, uh, look, I, I, I spent a lot of time in this hotel. And the, the bourbon and banter downstairs, the speakeasy that you have to punch a code into the phone booth. And there was a speakeasy at the original hotel. There was, uh, there was also the barbershop, barber right? right? The barbershop. Right. Wow. And I it's fantastic. It, the, they've done an extraordinary job. It, we often talk about the fact that we who work at the morning news never have to leave the building. We don't want to. It used to be they wouldn't let you. Now they, they, they kind of like you to leave at some point. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now.
Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. You know, if you ask most Americans what they know about Dallas, they might tell you it's Dallas the TV show or the Kennedy assassination. My next guest knows it's a whole lot more than that. And he's the collections and exhibits director for a museum you may not heard about. It's called the Old Red Museum of Dallas County. History and culture, that's a mouthful. His name, Carrie Adams. How are you, sir? Great. How are you? Now, you're only 10 years old as a museum, but you're going back a long time in history. We are. We, um, we tell people we cram literally 175 years of history into four rooms. So <laughs> it's bullet pointed, but it's all in there. And lots of surprises. <laughs> For example, uh, here's one. I did not know that Bonnie and Clyde were from? They were from West Dallas. Yeah. yeah. A lot of good that did them. Right. <laughs> but the bottom line is a lot of history here. Right. And I think that's, yeah, something people, you know, we get little kids in there. We get parents with um, older adults. And I think that, you know, I'd like to tell people we, our mission really is to tell the whole story. And there's many, as we call them, kind of sleeping stories that you didn't know about Sarah Horton Cockrell, who was the first female entrepreneur in Dallas in 1860. Um, not easy. Not easy, no. Um, and, uh, you know, just the, the wealth of entrepreneurship and opportunity here in Dallas that has shaped the city and reformed it decade after decade. You know, it's funny. I used to live in Houston uh, when I worked for Newsweek magazine, and I was living on an airline that's no longer with us called Texas, Texas International, otherwise known as TI. And there's another TI that you know about it in your museum, Texas Instruments. Yes. So many of you probably are familiar with the little handheld calculator that says TI on it. But um, going back to the early 1950s, they were... Um, building transistors for the first transistor radio and then they morphed into the silicone microchip which is now powering your cell phone. And all that's told, that story is told at your museum? Absolutely. When people come to the museum first of all, how are you open every day? We are open seven days a week 9am to 5pm. Any admission? Uh, $10 for adults $8 for seniors Children are five dollars, so. And how about for people reason. who act like children? Then we kick them out. Okay, good. But but, <laughs> but, but it's free. Uh, yeah. Bottom line is, it's interactive. You tell stories, and you tell stories about a history that goes back longer than people think it goes back. Right. We actually we our first gallery, the early years, starts with the Native American settlement here, with the Caddo tribes and. Um, Quanah Parker, who was an early Indian chief here in the area. So we, we really cover everything up to the current day. And, you know, I mentioned Bonnie and Clyde being from West Dallas, but when he got to prison, you have something on exhibit that we, he did. We do. When our exhibit was developed in the early 2000s, we, we started to collect artifacts from the community. And one of the things that we collected, but we did not have room for when the final... <laughs> Exhibit opened was a jewelry box that Clyde built at the Eastham Prison Farm um, for his, not for Bonnie, but for his sister-in-law, Blanche. Oh, sorry about that. So, okay. And the story was that she was one of the only people from his family who visited him in prison, and that's why he built it for Because everybody disowned him. 
well, he was still close to his, his family, but I think they kind of like hung back here in Dallas. So yeah. If you want to come visit us, that's fine, but we're not going down there. <laughs> <laughs> when people come to the museum, I mean, again, you're only 10 years old. Mm -hmm. What's the biggest surprise for them that they're not expecting to see? Well, I think one of them is, is certainly the ginormous um, Pegasus that's in our lobby, which is not the one on top from on top of the Magnolia building. It's a third of the size. Um, but um, just, I think, the breadth of stories and our history team did a great job of, of, of talking about the, the ethnic and racial diversity of the area. So many of our visitors are of Hispanic origin or African-American background. Um, they will connect with something in that museum that that maybe older institutions that have been in business, um, you know, in the same exhibits for 30 years wouldn't have had that same focus. Right. And is the jewelry box now on display from Clyde? Yeah, yes. It's in our 50 Objects, 50 Stories exhibit, which will be up through the middle of the summer. We may actually extend that just depending. Um, but, uh, yeah. Okay. And then you're going to do a whole history of Jerry Jones? <laughs> Oh, sure. <laughs> one of these days. Yeah, one of these days. Yeah, in the near distant future, yeah, perhaps. Right. We're talking to Carrie Adams from the Old Red Museum of Dallas County. History and culture say that three times fast, but that's where they are. Bottom line is, is it interactive for kids, too? Absolutely. We have touchscreen computers throughout the museum. A lot of them are, are kind of history games. So they're, they're what, you know, what did you learn in this area and kind of the whole, you know, take your wagon to to town type of You realize, of, of course, so. I'll be one of those kids on the touchscreen. Well, you know. please, come by. I yeah. take my wagon, you know. Because yeah. I want to be a kid when I go to a museum, especially a museum I can touch. Right. Exactly. Hello? Uh, this is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause for alarm. Get your motor running. Head out on the highway. Joining me now, we talked about the Statler. He's from, well, he is the Statler. He's he's the director of development and operations for the for the company that really put this all together. Michael Van Hus, how are you, sir? I'm doing well, Peter. Thank you. I mean, if you look at the history of this hotel, before you guys ever came on board. Other people tried to save it. They couldn't. Uh, it sat vacant. Another group came in to try to save it. They couldn't. What were you able to do that everybody else couldn't? Well, I don't want to take credit for that. That's Smirdan Mayetti. He's our owner uh, of Centurion American Development. He has just the most unique ability to have vision that I've ever met. Uh, the guy came in here. This place was just a disaster zone. But you knew it was a disaster. Yes. Everybody knew it was that, a disaster. That is correct. So you had to be able to look beyond it. He did. He did. And this guy has the confidence to pull things like this off, where very few people in the development business can see that far ahead. See, what, what amazes me is that this building was allowed to stand that long without being torn down, because once, once one group fails, you know, I, I hear the sound of bulldozers. That's correct. And I think that's what, uh, that's what the THC and NPS saw as well. That's why they stepped in and so THC, tell me who that is? I'm sorry, Texas Historic Commission. Yes. And the National Park Service, uh, the federal government entity that protects buildings like this and they saw uh, the value in the history the architectural design 
and uh, they were determined to save this building. And uh, they mothballed it for several years until someone like Madad stepped up to get it done. But of course, it's one thing to say I'm stepping up, it's another thing to have the deep pockets to make it happen. That's correct. It's not only the deep pockets, but we did get a lot of assistance through federal funding from the National Park Service through the form of historic tax credits, uh, through uh, historic tax credits as well. Because in typical hotel development, you know, you know you're going to have so many rooms, you know what the, the, what, the, what the market set is in terms of what you can charge for a room. You know what you have to do to even break even. And based on what you had to do to this hotel, you couldn't have done it under normal terms. No way. In- impossible. In- economically, we'd never been able to justify the restoration and renovation of this building. And, of course, then you had to make the case how important it was to do that. That's correct. A lot of hearings? A lot of meetings, for sure. A lot of hearings, a lot of city council meetings, a lot of, I mean, just a lot of presentations all the way around. I mean, when you first walked in here, could you yourself imagine what this would look like? No, no, I'll be honest with you. I don't have that vision. First time I walked through here, I thought, what in the world are we doing here? And now look what it is. It's just an incredible restoration. I mean, I remember this hotel. I mean, I used to be the Newsweek correspondent. I was based in Houston. I was in Dallas all the time. This was not the go-to place. It was at one point, no doubt about it. That's what we're talking about, the great history here, going back to, what, 1956 and everything else. But to be able to turn this around, first of all, you were were restricted, and thankfully so, in terms of what you couldn't do, right, because it's a historic building. That is correct. But then you had to work around that to make it physically work, not just aesthetically work. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. I mean, there are many requirements that came with the uh, support from the Texas Historic Commission and the National Park Service. Preservation of uh, architectural details, um, the veneer. We, we, there's just many, many things we couldn't touch. Like? Well, uh, the windows. I mean, we'd love to have 2018 windows in here, but we don't. We have 1956 windows. The original windows? Absolutely. And why couldn't you touch the windows? I would think that would be the one thing you could touch. No, I mean, because they're part of the, uh, the architectural and the exterior element that the uh, National Park Service wanted to preserve. All right. And, of course, one guest who'd been dead for 75 years who couldn't touch him either, probably. No, just kidding. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> He's still in the room. What's the one thing that surprised you the most? As this project evolved? You know, it probably wasn't even a physical element. It was the support that we had, state, local, and, and national support that came with this, this project. We have so many uh, fans and cheerleaders that stepped up to uh, help petition to save the building, to help petition to provide the, the, the federal and state financing to and you're now And you're now the 300th inductee into the Historic Hotels of America. We love that number. <laughs> Absolutely. And you got the plaque right on the wall now. We can prove it. You, know, you can't miss it. You walk in <laughs> there, right. you know. Yeah. But now, now it's up to you to tell the story. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. Hey, Prime members, Peter Greenberg here. You can listen to Ion Travel ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today, and you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. And before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com. 
Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Welcome to Pura, the most pristine, safe, climate-stable city on Earth. A haven amidst the wreckage. Here, you're safe from heat domes, superstorms, water bandits in the outer lands. There's no crime in Pura. No murder, no suicide. And best of all, there's no cost to join us. In Pura, we promise to keep you safe. They killed her! You took everything! In a world that doesn't feel so safe anymore, we're waiting for you. Here, in Pura. The Last City is a new scripted audio drama from Wondery. Enjoy The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City right now, ad-free, on Wondery Plus. Get started with your free trial at wondery.com slash plus.